Hello, and welcome to the Particular Good Podcast. I said particular good, not particularly good. It's a name, not a claim. I'm Charles Hughes-Huff, Professor of Sacred Scripture at St. Bernard's School of Theology and Ministry, and I'm here with Heather Hughes-Huff, Iris Murdoch, philosopher, novelist. Um, Iris is the subject of our conversation today. And since I forgot to say the title of our previous podcast, till well into the podcast, what we were talking about, uh, we are talking about Iris Murdoch's book, The Bell, is our primary focus as a novel. And I also want to talk about Iris Murdoch's philosophical treatise, The Sovereignty of Good. I encountered Iris Murdoch through this book, uh, and then Heather and I both read The Bell um, uh, directly thereafter. So, Heather, I just want to just lay out a few things from The Sovereignty of Good that will help sort of in uh, frame, frame the, the novel. Yeah, because I think what she's doing with her novels is very close to her heart uh, philosophically. So The Sovereignty of Good is a book of three essays, and they were essays given in different contexts or written for different contexts, and Murdoch did not intend them to be published together. So they're, they're actually like that. When you read this book, you can see her presenting a Platonic, a Neoplatonic understanding of ethics in uh, different arguments. And they're different essays, they make different arguments, but they're also enforcing, not referring to each other, but they, they talk about the same concepts in different ways. I want to mostly focus on the first one, which is called The Idea of Perfection. And um, she goes uh, into a critique of modern ethics, especially Kantian ethics, and what she talks about as surrealistic existentialism. And she thinks of this as this kind of ethics of the 20th century as talking about actions as publicly observable. We're going to like take an action, analyze it out in the in public. And she thinks that both that and the glorification of the omnipotent will she talks about, like the Kantian, I will stand back and judge my will and uh, achieve autonomous will in public with actions. She finds this an insufficient um, characterization of morality. So she wants to think about morality as having internality, or interiority, as well as public observable action. So she notes that like Wittgenstein has ruled out the question of the inner object but he's not talking about moral or psychological concepts when he says that. And she thinks extending that into the interiority of a person is wrong. Um, and instead, she wants to talk about a moral activity that does not have any sort of like outward correspondence. Yeah. So she gives this example of a mother's attitude changing towards her daughter-in-law. Um, that where she behaves beautifully towards her daughter all the whole time, but she thinks of her as vulgar and petty and stupid. But this um, doesn't manifest in public action that you could sort of like analyze by moral act theory. Um, but with loving attention by saying, I need to be just to my daughter-in-law over a process of time, this exemplar comes to see her differently, like not petty, not stupid, but in fact, like spontaneous and um, 
charming in her own way. And this, uh, <laughs> this is, for Murdoch, an example of moral activity uh, that is not analyzable within a Kantian or existentialist paradigm. It works with virtue ethics. Yeah, it does, I think, work with virtue ethics. For sure, yeah. But she's not... This is like pre-Philippa Foote. This is pre-Anscombe. Yeah. Um, they're all friends, apparently. Philippa Foote, Elizabeth Anscombe, Iris Murdoch, they're all working on the same ideas from different angles. So, um, yeah, she's not... She is talking about virtue theory in a certain way. She, she goes back to Plato instead of Aristotle, so she wants to talk about it in a slightly different way than Anscombe and Foote did. Who, I don't know if Foote's work as well, but Anscombe goes back to Aristotle. And I think Foote does, too. But I couldn't swear. I feel like at some point in my life I would have known the answer to that, but it was. She's long definitely time. doing virtue ethics. We can't say that for <laughs> that's, sure. Yeah. That's what we know. And she we also remember. invented the trolley problems. You know that? Really? Yeah, Philippa Foot. Again, maybe I did. Well, Don't didn't anymore. She did it, I think, to it's sort of to learn again. illustrate the limitations of uh, different ethical theories, rather than to try to <laughs> solve this like debate between utilitarianism and Kantianism. Yeah, no, <laughs> but. I'm really talking a lot about Foot, who I don't know much about. So let's Great. go back to Murdoch. <laughs> uh, so she thinks of, because she wants this to, to be the individual, knowable by love, and um, having loving attention to reality, she thinks of that, that that's what ethical action is. I shouldn't use the word action. What morality is, is loving attention to reality. And so this then helps with, as all these philosophers of ethics do, they're always talking about what, what ethics are, what morality is, but how is it related to human freedom? And for her, this is important because loving attention to reality makes one more free. Because the more reality one actually knows, mm -hmm. the more free you are. So the mother is more free. She has more freedom when she is lovingly atten attentive to the daughter-in-law because she then um, is not simply acting according to some sort of thing, but she really is free. free. She's she freely loving respond. her. Yeah, freely responding to her and seeing more and, and, and more reality and getting clarity of vision. And so this leads to a sort of like understanding of perfection is like a clarity of vision. This is where it says platonic, you know, yeah. you see things as they are. I love that, like, we're limited by our own judgments. Yes. It feels like we're limiting others, but we are limited. We are limited, precisely. Yeah, I love that. Well said. So it's like um, not, we're free from bias, we're free from prejudice. That actually leads then to, the more free we are from bias and prejudice, the more we're able to see not a sort of condescending graciousness towards someone, but rather to really see them as they are, right? Yeah, and that even failures would be framed more neutrally. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I haven't read the bell for a minute, so I'm hoping I'm not too rusty on all the details, but the thing that was so fun about reading this book was talking to you about the sovereignty of good, mm -hmm. And you would tell me all this fun stuff that you were getting into <laughs> about illusion mm -hmm. and reality. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was reading this novel at the same time, and it was like, oh, my gosh, those ideas are so perfect for this. And it's like, well, yeah, it's 
this it's Iris Murdoch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's she's, she's doing. Yeah, <laughs> she wrote both books. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like they're obviously like extremely related in these really interesting ways. But can you talk a little bit about illusion? Is that way? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So where she deals with illusion more, um, she talks about this in terms of bias and prejudice and against perfection. Okay, so uh, as a sort of like an ideal limit in the first essay, uh, the idea of perfection. But in the third essay, she is, well, actually in the second and third essay. So the second essay is called On God and Good. And she talks about how prayer is a way of turning an attention from one's own egocentric desires and going on to a greater vision of reality. So prayer is this way of uh, moving beyond one's own fantasies. So fantasies or illusions are what, yeah, there are, we have a natural sort of selfishness that she wants to talk about. And she's talking about how in the old, ye olden methods, you know, (laughs) for the religious people. Well, she's not being condescending towards religious people, I should say. She's very into that. But she's saying, okay, even if we can't bring back God as a full concept of like naive concept like we had in the medieval era, uh, post-Wittgenstein and so on, was her paradigm, uh, that prayer had this unique thing of focusing a loving attention on God, who is like a, she writes as a single, perfect, non-representable, and necessarily real object of attention. That's how she defines God. So prayer is loving attention to this person. And so then she wants to talk about um, a non-religious concept of good trying to connect to something beyond the self. And uh, so in that essay, she's talking about transcendence as one's attention being directed away from egocentric fantasies. So, and she focuses a lot on beauty as, as, a, as a really strong way to do this. Right? She talks about this in the third essay. She talks about this as well. She talks about it in terms of language. She talks about it in terms of like learning a language, the authority inherent in the language structure and the grammar and how beautiful language is. When you're giving real attention to that and the way that it was required to actually learn a language, you are drawn away from egocentric fantasies and into loving attention to reality. And she points to things like bird watching. <laughs> she says, little do they know these, you know, bird watching folks and their on their hikes, that they are like paying attention, giving loving attention to reality and actually headed towards uh, perfection and, and this kind of Is this why you wanted to take up bird watching? Reading Iris Murdoch all summer uh, while I was doing an archaeological dig, which was a really <laughs> fantastic place to give loving attention to reality because you're like getting up super early, going to see a beautiful landscape of stars and the rising sun over a, over the, the wadi. And then like actually just giving loving attention to, to dirt and <laughs> that you're sifting and, and scraping up uh, and rocks. And is this a wall and so on? It really resonated with me to read this book. And then uh, to see the beauty of the mundane, which, you know, and our tradition has always been emphasized, prayer and work going together. And not only our tradition, this is like the attention to small details as a form of prayer even is something that's um, part of our tradition and uh, part of lots of traditions. Kind of like popular culture in a way, I feel like the tending towards minimalism and, and 
the idea of like rewilding your children's education, all these things sort of work together. Yeah. Yeah. Loving attention to reality. Rewilding. I've never heard this term rewilding education. Oh, I don't need, I don't. I think it was a book that my friend was reading. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I like <laughs> it. It's like, you know, like making your kids have adventures and be outside and get yeah. off screens and things like that. Oh, absolutely. They become children again. So, yeah, that's what I, I definitely, I read this over the summer while I was digging, like I said, and I found it very transformative. And um, and then I came back and was like, I need to get out of my office and go pay attention, loving attention to reality. And uh, so I wanted to go bird watching. And also Heather's pointing to herself. How about me? Loving <laughs> <Yeah>. well, <laughs> attention to my wife is, is so, yeah, that's part of the program. Yeah. yeah. Good to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So that is uh, Sovereignty of Good, a very short, uh, very – I'm not a philosopher. Are you a philosopher? Certainly not. Oh, my gosh. Here we are talking philosophy. <laughs> what are we doing? I don't know. But anyway, that's my little attempt with some um, notes I took um, to talk about this briefly. But um, Iris Murdoch, in her argument in these books or in these essays, says, you know, one of the things that brings people into loving attention to reality is art. And it's one of the most effective things. Good art. She wants to clarify. And how does she categorize good art and bad art? Well, by the very thing she's talking about. Does the art bring you into reality? Or is it just another example of fantasy? Is this the artist's fantasy? If so, it's not really art for her. Um, I, like that. I don't know how you would make that call. But I do know what she means. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, no, I, I think that it can be clear when a, a writer is being indulgent or sort of losing the, losing the reins of a story and like letting their passions run wild or whatever. Oh, absolutely. I see much more in writing. I was thinking of art, like on the wall. And I, oh I, yeah, no, I, I'm thinking of novels. Yeah. True. Stuff where it's like, if you, I, I think about Graham Greene and as indulgent or non-indulgent. Both. Oh yeah. That's what I, I thought you were going to say. I feel like, so the end of the affair is one of my favorite. It was, I, I wrote my thesis on it. I spent a lot of time with it. And I feel like by the end of spending all that time with it, I felt like you could see how Green's own foibles made their way into the text. Yeah. And if maybe he had his stuff together a little bit more, that it would have been a better work. Like it could have been edited to be a little bit better. Yeah, I can see that. He was writing it like in the wake or during the midst of his own affair, right? Yeah, it's like totally got a ton of autobiography in it, which of course is going to mess you up. Like a lot of his other books are a little less, you know, affected by himself. Indeed. Okay, well, yeah, I like that very much. No, that's exactly right. Uh, that's a great example. So she, yeah, put her money where her mouth is, if you will. She stopped writing philosophy and started writing the novel. I don't know if it's actually as straightforward as that. I think maybe they're both going on at the same time. In yeah. fact, there must have been. Uh, but she wrote this um, novel, The Bell, in 1958. Kind of earlier than it feels, right? Yeah. Yeah. She's very impressive. And it's beautiful work, beautiful novel. And we're going to talk about it. This is a novel that is both about ideas and very much in the thick of human relationships and human life in the real, real world. And... Um, this is what she's about. She wants to have a moral discussion. She wants to talk about morals, you know, but she doesn't want to do so in a sort of symbolic way. Yeah. There, there's like, you, you can't actually talk about morals 
in a purely abstract way, I think. She's sort of showing them play out in people's lives, which is the only way that we have access to them in a real way. Right. She wrote a um, an essay about writing literature once, uh, and um, and she said in that essay that literature must always represent a battle between real people and images. And what it requires now is a much stronger and more complex conception of the former. That is the real people. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, yeah, that that is what this book is. It's a bunch of people who are making decisions that they don't understand themselves and are dealing with ideas of who they are that like sort of compete with reality mm -hmm. um, and the choices that they make. Uh, and some, yeah, it's like, yeah, that's fascinating. I love, I love that. That's exactly what she does. Yeah. Which is sure. really impressive because it's also like you can talk about how that should be done or what should be done. But to actually do it, it's like I don't usually associate those with the same people. Yeah. Like really natural artists who write beautiful literature aren't always the best art critics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's she had a lot of thoughts about what morality was. She had a lot of thoughts about what um literature and art should be. And she wrote about all of those, but she also did it. Put her hand to the plow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm really successfully. That's the thing that really struck me in reading this novel was was how you know how real it felt how how real the people were in their battling self-conceptions and impulsive choices and stuff that's great yeah before we go into like sort of the plot of the novel I'll just point out one other quote from on god and good from the second essay in that book the sovereignty of good she says, um, a realistic and detailed picture of the fallen man, Freud takes a thoroughly pessimistic view of human nature. He sees if psyche is an egocentric system of quasi-mechanical energy largely determined by its own individual history, whose natural attachments are sexual, ambiguous, and hard for the subject to understand or control. Introspection reveals only the deep tissue of ambivalent motive, and fantasy is a stronger force than reason. Objectivity and unselfishness are not natural to human beings. This goes back to that thing we were talking about earlier when when she wants to contrast the fantasy with the the attempt to actually look at reality and truth and beauty. And she, like the ancients, both Christian and non-Christian, thinks that this isn't like what you naturally do as a human being. <laughs> if left to your own devices, you're going to be more likely to live in the world of fantasy that's an egocentric, selfish fantasy than to actually contemplate the truth, beauty, and goodness, and then try to work that out in your own life. And a lot of attempts are going to fail. <laughs> it's not as simple as like, okay, so here's a person who's aware of this and is attempting it. No. Because she goes on to talk about like the sadomasochism of certain kinds of spirituality. Right. Well, and, and in this novel, the people who are intentional, who are, you know, making an effort to accomplish something in the spiritual community are the ones who know themselves the least. Yes. And it's the sort of like unformed, childish, actually young people who come in 
Well, okay, let's, should we, like, give a little summary? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Talk, what's this novel about, Heather? Go, go ahead. Okay, so the baseline plot is there is a lay community of Anglicans at a place called Imber Court, like a very old house in England, um, that's connected to Imber Abbey, which is a home of cloistered Benedictine Anglican nuns. So you start the story with this woman named Dora, who's a, a very young woman, very immature, um, who's going to join her much older, severe husband, who's at the the abbey and the staying at Ember Court um, to do research because he's into like medieval stuff and they have all these manuscripts or whatever that he's into. And then you meet all the, all the people who are in this lay community who it's like a motley cast of characters. Michael is the leader of the community. He's very like sort of self-conscious, self-aware, trying to do something good. He's got like a checkered past. Uh, James, who is sort of like the moral authority, who's sort of Michael's number two. You have a young woman named Catherine who is going to join the cloistered nuns. And then her brother, who's an alcoholic and clearly a troubled guy who's just staying there briefly in a like removed house connected to the court, who you learn later has this like romantic past with Michael that Michael hasn't disclosed to anybody. Toby is a young guy who's just staying, staying there for the summer before he goes to college, who's very, he comes in very innocent <laughs> and then is is challenged quite a bit uh, in his time there by a lot of these people who are a little more complicated than he's used to. Um, and then there's a, a few other people who you get to know who are less central, who are like running the garden that the lay community does to to make money and to keep going. So then, so that's like who's there mostly and and what they're doing. But then the big plot is that you hear this story from Paul pretty soon when the the novel starts. He tells Dora that he found this story, this medieval story that in ye olden days at the Abbey there was a nun who had broken her vows and like had an affair. And a I'm, guy creeping into the monastery at night. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I I've sort of – it's been a little while since I read this book, so I'm sort of like vague on the details. But basically, they got found out the bell that was in the abbey sort of like Christianly but magically was like expelled from the abbey and flung into the lake. And I don't, I don't remember if the nun died or like it's very dramatic. Um, so this is sort of – and then, then there's a scene where Michael has a dream about all the the nuns coming out of the abbey and going by the the water. Someone maybe drowned or something, and it's like it's very ominous. It feels very creepy and real. Um, and the bells are not just symbols; they're like almost characters. Yeah, they have personalities, and so they're named. Okay, so the, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. There's yeah. another bell. Okay, so yeah. that's the that's the old bell. And then in the like live action of the novel, they have just purchased a new bell for the Abbey mm-hmm. that they're going to have this big like christening ceremony for. The bishop's going to come and they're going to – it's this big deal to get this new bell because it's been like hundreds of years since this place has had a bell. Yeah. Nobody else in the novel knows about the old bell except for Paul presumably who found these like accounts about it um, from the distant past. But – Toby's swimming in the lake that's connected to the Ember Court and the Ember Abbey, and he discovers an old bell. He hasn't heard this story. So you as a reader are like super creeped out in this moment. And then he tells Dora about it. Um, Dora convinces him 
that they're going to like pull this gigantic bell out of the water and switch the bells before the big ceremony with the bishop. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's like, it feels like she's possessed when she comes up with this story. It's like very witchy. Um, yeah. But like at the same time, I don't think she totally knows why she's so compelled to to create this fiasco. Um, and then, yeah, in the end, it all goes wrong. Um, they don't end up switching the bells. And then the new bell during the ceremony to bring it to the abbey falls <laughs> to the lake. <laughs> um, <laughs> so anyway, that's like the... That's the skeleton of the story. Yeah. And I love this. this. The bell is the title of the book. And these bells are both in the book very um, compelling and quasi-characters. The second bell, we see the christening ceremony where it's named and um, dressed. And it's going to be welcomed into the abbey like a postulant. Yeah. And with a with a full liturgy for the bell as like a, a quasi-Christian thing. A character. And I, I think this is not... Merely fanciful, the, the Anglican commitment to church bells in England is something quite different oh, than, interesting. than we might imagine here in the U.S. So another novel you might read if you want to get into the bell thing is The Nine Tailors by Dorothy Sayers, where you are um, – she goes very much into the um, – the people who ring the bells, you know, there's a whole crew of guys who will ring the bells all night, you know, competitions and so on. And the, the place of bells, the naming of bells, the liturgical installation of bells, this is all very much a part of old Anglican tradition. Yeah. Uh, so this is, um, but but what Murdoch does with this is create a sort of almost, I wouldn't say fully, but almost magical realism yeah. with the bells where they're com- there's a certain sense that they're entering the plot as agents. <laughs> yeah, especially the old bell, the yeah. old creepy bell. Yep. What's so interesting to me is that these characters, Michael is a is, it's like I don't know quite how to describe it. It's like he is he's a good person. He wants to be good. He has all these plans for this community that are objectively positive, you know? He's yeah. not like a bad guy. No. He's like ter- trying to turn Eros into agape. <laughs> nice. Yeah. He right? has he has this desire to join the priesthood and he messed it all up. Um, he was a teacher when he met Nick and they had this romantic relationship that Nick exposed and sort of blew up Michael's life. Um, and then ever since then, he's been like this sort of like quasi failure who obviously can't become a, a priest because of this story, but he's trying to do good in it. Um, so all of that about him is true. Yeah. Um, and he is. <laughs> Arrows to a coffee is right. When they bring Nick to the community, he doesn't tell anybody about this long, tortured history. No. Which is like obviously should affect how the – where Nick is, who he talks to. Why he's an alcoholic. <laughs> if he should be there at all. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't tell anybody. And to him, in his head, it's like – He's protecting Nick. He's doing something for Nick maybe by letting him be there. He doesn't want to get in the way of that. But actually you have this feeling, this like very sinister undertone of like, no, he's just not being honest. Like maybe he's a coward. Maybe he wants to see Nick again. When he picks him up from the train station, he's like feels drunk. And then he's kind of bad to Nick while he's there. Like he doesn't do enough to help him because he's so like – agitated by this whole situation yeah and the same thing (laughs) with toby 
<laughs> yeah, you, you see this like very genial scene where he is just uh, drunk on cider and in the car with Toby, and Toby's very sweet, and he just wants to consecrate the moment forever, and so he kisses him. Um, yeah. And then he's very apologetic, and um, it's funny because it's not – he's not tortured. It's, Which one? <laughs> it's, uh, well, neither of them. Michael is a little tortured, but it's not this like – the theme of lust here is not a sort of, it's like clearly he's doing something wrong and it's not totally clear to himself on what that is and, and so on. But it's not this like uh, extremely tortured, oh no, I'm a horrible person, I have to go. Like it's like this back and forth. Nick is the tortured person. Uh, Michael is not really tortured. I would say he's pretty tortured. You think he's tortured? <laughs> yeah. I don't see, I, I just don't see him as like, um, it's not a portrayal of homosexual lust as like this um, shame to acting out kind of cycle. Right. No, it is, it is more, Murdoch is surprising really good. for the 50s, I'm saying. Oh, yeah. totally. <laughs> yeah. Murdoch is like really subtle about this stuff where it is, it's all mixed with like love and affection and, it's not just this like I'm a bad guy. I'm gonna sin or or whatever. It is. It is like a confusing moment for him. Yeah. Um, but I would say that he is tortured in the sense that you know he's in total distress after this happens. Yes. Yeah. Um, he's, he's tortured by the the implications of everything that could happen um, as a result of this, destroying his life again. And, right. Um, the shame that would come from it, and yeah, yeah, he's definitely tortured. You're right. But. And you also see him like going down this road that he shouldn't go down. And he's he's totally lying to himself as he does. Like even as he drinks the cider, you know, it's like, stop drinking, dude. You <laughs> yeah. have this this sense of like total uh dread. That's what reading this book, it's like almost it's very light. Not much is happening. Nothing terrible really happens at all. But there is a deep sense of ominous dread. You're like marching towards an inevitable future of dis destruction. Yes. But it's like not much happens. <laughs> right. And I, I have to admit, I don't know fully how this all plays out on the ideas front. It's, it's like you, you want to see Michael, to see in Michael a certain form of attempt at morality, you know, where he. Yeah, it's not bad. He is driving at a sort of imagination, romantic desire, but bringing that he, – he infuses that. That's not just these moments where he's like, oh, he has a guilty past with Nick and he has this moment with Toby. That's like very much a part of it, but it's also like his homily for the bell is very imagination-oriented. If you – like he's, yeah. he's trying to bring that kind of – Eros to agape to the very installation, the symbolism of the bell and his interpretation. You know, yeah. Uh, and whereas like James, his right hand man is more like, well, we got to do what we got to do. Real I mean, cut and dry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> morality is morality. We follow it and we go on our way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it is interesting because Michael, I think that Michael is a corrupting influence. Like mm -hmm. when he says stuff like that about creativity or like imagination or whatever, um, it's like, it, it's a, a license for him. It's to, a fantasy. Yeah, it's a fantasy. It's like uh, sort of relieving himself of, of certain responsibilities uh, or disciplines that actually he needs to be good. Mm -hmm. So I think that James is sort of like, you can trust his perspective because yeah. uh, he's a, more of a neutral good, even if he's kind of a harsher 
a less interesting guy. Mm-hmm. And it is his sort of the relationship of his self-conception, his self-consciousness, how he fits into these ideas that make them more suspect. Mm-hmm. Um, because then you you have someone like Dora who she's like a pagan. <laughs> you know, she yeah. comes into this community and is like, what is this? She's not there because she loves the idea of a, a lay Anglican community. She's no. there because her husband's there and she like is sort of horrified by by the idea of this stuff. Like when she finds out that the nuns are cloistered, she like she literally is like, oh my God, that sounds horrible. Yeah, this is a nightmare. <laughs> the, yeah. Like <laughs> she's recoils from the chant. Yes. Yeah. All of it sort of is like kind of upsetting to her as she meets it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think that she's the character who benefits from it the most in this novel. Um, by the end of all of these encounters with uh, liturgy and religious people, the abbess, who she's very like made uncomfortable by at first and doesn't want to meet with, it's sort of those things that make her mature. And by the end... She's sort of like the last person to be at Ember Court, and it's grounded her and given her a direction that's really positive for her life. And it's sort of because she didn't have all of these preconceptions, these fantasies about what it was supposed to be, that she's able to benefit from it. Mm, yeah, I, I like that. That's uh, She is. She's like the one who finds or not the one who finds but the one who tries to use the old bell she has this really mystical experience at one point with the bell which is both mystical but extremely physical which is something that Murdoch is very good with like yeah. she it's, it's all it's not an idea it's not there's like a platonic dialogue kind of thing going on about like what morality is and what goodness is and how to achieve it but it's so enmeshed in the real world of the characters and the physicality of the characters and the totally. things that are going on. Uh, I, I loved the way that music played a role in this, like both the sort of the, the chant that some people are trying to draw to and sort of purification, like and uh, within the monastery, and then the sort of the the people, the lay community trying to come up with what their liturgy should be like. Right. Uh, there's some funny scenes where they're like debating what that should be. Um, but then also, which Dora completely rejects. There's also like some Bach. Yeah, the played. classical music. Uh, yeah, she hates it. And then she, she grows, it grows on her. It grows on her, right? And there's jazz as a part of her sort of like pre-life. And then bird song. I, I loved the bird song stuff because... Iris Murdoch and her philosophical work on moral, um, like like I mentioned, she talks about bird watching as a kind of like. Does she? Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe I didn't say that, but she talks about bird watching as a kind of thing that is giving attention to beauty in the world, um, and that like people don't know they're drawing closer to the good, you know, by doing something like paying careful attention to birds. Right. But they, in fact, might not even cross their mind, but that's, in fact, what's happening. And because it's this attentiveness to something real in the world, and and there's this freedom and beauty within the bird song that is, like, also not exactly constrained to some rules of musical form or worship, Mm -hmm. but is also, like, 
in nature a kind of um, moving towards the goodness of the world, you know, in some yeah. way. And well, um, there's like, a whole scene where they're like imitating bird song, and she's like, Dora's like learning about all the birds. They're in the woods, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that scene at the end where she's on the lake and looking back over all of Ember and feeling like she's the last one there and it's hers is really interesting. Yeah, I love that. I love that about the bird the bird song because it is it's like it's what liturgy should be, you know that you're drawn to something good that's ordered that is outside of yourself and providing you something. But we have all of our ideas and feelings and self-conceptions that we bring to the liturgy in a way that we wouldn't to birdsong. Yes. And this is like even more true now than <laughs> Iris is <laughs> talking about this in, purely in terms of like personal, like morality, like the, the way people are conceiving of them, of their personality and syncretic selves in the liturgy. Right. But um, the, the liturgy wars of our era are, are like, it's just like a clearly really like um, kind of sad, banal, Here's an image of what of here's an ideological image, and here's another ideological image, and here's how we're gonna see ourselves within these ideological images. Um yeah. not, not that anyone who's ever thought about liturgy has this going on, but there's definitely we all have experienced a lot of that from all kinds of corners. Yeah, and you you like place all sorts of things on it that don't don't belong there. Right. It's a it's a fantasy in a certain way. Yeah. Um that is yeah, I like that. That's not yeah, but not and not to conversations. <laughs> it's it's an interesting idea. Well, but just let that hang there. Actually, <laughs> I just want to say not not to say that no bird song oh. <laughs> equates or is doing the same thing as the liturgy in Here's an objective the, the sense. The Hughes Huff proposition for the Catholic liturgy problems. Go debates. to the birds. Go to the birds. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, and just to also say that it's not the, as we tease some of these things out. I don't I feel intimidated by this book even as I'm talking about it. There's so much here. There's so many uh aspects of both philosophical and literary value. And there's so many ways she pulls this way and that way and the characters go this way and that way. There, there's not a send up of of chant in this book. There's not a send up of religiosity. There's a send no. up of false religiosity or like using religion for a sort of fan fantasy way, but but like the the abbess of the actual monastery yeah. is a fantastic character who is like a voice of wisdom, yeah. sheer wisdom throughout. The And the idea of the nuns chanting is not negative. Not at all. No, it's like a – itself a kind of bird song that the characters out without are sort of – Putting their own stuff onto. Yeah. Yeah, like they're not doing it. I think that's – Yeah. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. Sorry, did, were you headed somewhere? No, no, no. That's precisely it. It's like a, a way of using the idea of the monastery that they're living right by as a sort of like self-expression. Right. Uh, uh, um, even with Catherine, who ends up who's wanting to jo join it, uh, she's trying to join it to solve a deeper issue of like she's in love and and totally messed up and crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That's. Well, yeah. I mean, not to. <laughs> Not to give too much away or to be too harsh about the character, but it is – she's a great example in this, like, small way where you don't get to know her throughout the novel. She's a symbol of, like, purity, goodness, perfection. She's um, – everyone in the community looks to her 
uh, as like one of them who will become someone in the Abbey. Yeah. So they're, everybody's projecting all their stuff onto Catherine too. Whatever the moral idea is, they're going to put it on Catherine. All of it. Yeah. And she's this like cipher. Um, she's like a blank slate to hold all of that for them because she's like a beautiful young woman. She doesn't say anything. She's very like humble, whatever. And then in the end, you get like a window into her head, which is pure chaos, yeah. which is like <laughs> not not a calm entering of beatitude. It's she tries to kill herself in the lake. Like it's it's not good. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's I just she just does such a good job. And it is, it's like it is kind of a hard book to talk about. It would it would be an incredible book club book. Yes. Like you could go on and on and on, but in this context where you're like trying to give a plot summary, the plot's kind of like twisty turny and I, I hope we're making sense to people. I'm sure we're not. I hope that anyone who listens to this podcast will either, because of one or two things that we said that they liked or because they hate everything we're saying, will go read the <laughs> go novel. Go read it yeah. and then talk about it amongst yourselves. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> it is a, it's a good one. And I, I just want to go back to Michael. We, we focus a lot on Michael. I was interested with how the, the novel ended with two characters. Well, there's two attempted suicides, one of which is successful, uh, the brother-sister, Catherine and Nick. Uh, Catherine, but both of their stories sort of end at the suicide. Yeah. And I want to come back to Nick. but And then the novel ends, and then Paul goes away, and, and, and Dora's just there. So Michael and Dora there. The novel ends with a sort of focus on Michael and Dora. Mm -hmm. Michael is processing his immense feelings about the suicide of his former lover, Nick, who he is, finds himself increasingly in love with now that he's gone. And he has to go through a season of sort of further self-reflection. And I, I wasn't really sure what was happening with that. Like, in the end, um, he's he keeps going to mass in the Abbey. And he is left feeling that it, it's like... It exists there, but it and he exists beside it. Like it's it's there, it's real, it's going on. And he is no longer sure if he believes in God, but he exists beside the mass, is how he puts it. It's not consoling, not uplifting, but in some way factual. There is a God, he says, but I do not believe in him. Um, so this is a kind of interesting thing and i i didn't really know quite what to make of it and i wondered what you thought i don't totally buy that he really doesn't believe in god mm -hmm. i think that what happens at the end is a sort of crushing of his fantasy because his relationship with god and with the abbey and and his ideas about he had really wanted to be a priest and then he was okay i'll be this lay minister this is my role this is what i can do but he wasn't being totally himself or honest or true. Yeah. All of that is dashed by the the crumbling of this community and the death of Nick. Yep. I might read a little bit toward at the end where where he's sort of ending up. Yeah, please do. So it says after Nick's death he was for a long time quite unable to pray. He felt indeed as this is what you were saying as 
if his belief in God had been broken at a single blow, or as if he had discovered that he had never believed. He absorbed himself so utterly, so desperately in the thought of Nick that even to think about God seemed an intrusion and absurdity. So that's like first re- first reaction. Yeah. But then gradually he became more detached, but there was no sense of his faith being renewed. He thought of religion as something far away, something into which he had never really penetrated at all. He vaguely remembered that he had had emotions, experiences, hopes, but real faith in God was something utterly remote from all that. He understood that at last and felt almost coldly the remoteness. The pattern which he had seen in his life had existed only in his own romantic imagination. At the human level, there was no pattern. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And as he felt bitterly the grimness of these words, he put it to himself, there is a God, but I do not believe in him. Eventually, a kind of quietness came over him as of a haunted animal that crouches, sorry, hunted animal (laughs) (laughs) that crouches in hiding for a long while until it is lulled into a kind of peace. The silent days pass like a dream. After his work, he sat in the refectory with Dora, drinking innumerable cups of tea, while the petals of fading roses fell upon the table, diffusing a sweet, weary smell of potpourri, and they talked of Dora's plans. Um, So he's, at this time, very focused on Dora, and Mm -hmm. sort of like, they they have, (laughs) they're like, you know, two passengers of shipwreck, they're sort of thrown together. And they they care for each other in a more real way, I think, than he had, with all of his fantasy, been able to accomplish for people before. Yeah, he falls into a sort of actual monastic rhythm with her. Right. Um, And then can give her advice that he's, like, not sure about, but that feels true. Mm -hmm. Um, Because he has this feeling, like, I know I should tell her that she needs to go back to her husband. They're married. That's it. But... What she needs is to become her own person, to become an adult, to learn how to live. And so he encourages her, makes connections for her to go get a job, to live with a friend and sort of, you know, turn into a person who can be a wife, Mm -hmm. which doesn't mean that she won't go back to her husband eventually. But as it is now, she's like not up for it. Yeah. Which is, yeah, it's like a very subtle you don't know how that feels when you hear it. You know, it's like they are married. <laughs> she needs to figure it out. But like, how do you maybe going about that looks not as direct as, as you know, James would think. Mm-hmm. So I think Michael's developing some subtlety, but I think that there's some healing for him. Yes, 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 yes. I agree. That's a, it is a healing. It's a repentance. He's being newly open and honest with with the abbess and with himself i think and i and this acknowledgement when 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 of the of the eucharist that it exists and that he exists besides it is a kind of a kind of quiet attentiveness she creates that mood in that passage so beautifully with the 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 rose petals falling and the sort of days passing in and out and the sitting beside quietly beside the eucharist it's like this rhythm of life with a, a newfound stillness and slowness and attentiveness to what's happening, uh, what's real, that um, he stops, it stops being about what he thinks or what he believes right. or what his images are, or what her, his understanding is or what his own interpretation is or like inserting himself into the the content of 
of the liturgy, if you will. Totally. And it's it's no longer about belief. It's it's about something reality. It's about reality, which is it's not to say that it's not important to have certain beliefs, but it's like that those beliefs they can be kinds of fantasies um, when we're in a way he's saying to himself, I'm not sure what I believe and coming to actually believe for the first time, which is the same kind of thing. Yeah. And the, I found the part that I would mostly been thinking of, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, go. That is sort of expressing that, that like you said it. So a little bit later than the quote I had read before, he says, yet whoever celebrated it, the mass existed and Michael existed beside it. He made no movement now, reached out no hand. He would have to be found and fetched or else he was beyond help. Mm. Um, perhaps he was beyond help. He thought of those against whom he had offended and gathered them about him in this perhaps endless and perhaps meaningless attention. And next door, as it were, to total unbelief, there recurred to him the egotistical and helpless cry of the Dies Irae. Um, I will not try to say the Latin, but I just looked up the translation of this little verse that she then prints here, which is, Faint and weary thou hast sought me, on the cross of some suffering bought me, shall such grace be vainly brought me. Mm -hmm. I just think that there is a lot of hope Yes, in this idea of like, he'd have to be found and fetched and... No, that's exactly right. What does right. God do? Yeah. I, I love this. I love this whole thing because to me, it's like, this is precisely it. It's like the, the, the ending of the fantasy, the yes. ending of the image, yep. which feels like the ending of the belief to him, but it's for the first step had. because that's what he had. But like now it's actually the, the beginning of the, the ceasing of the striving, the stillness, the attentiveness, the helplessness, the cry for help, the stillness of knowing one can't do it on one's own. Mm -hmm. That is often and almost maybe perhaps always the beginning of what faith actually is. Yeah. So silence. Well, and, and this this loss, this terrible like grief and loss that he has for his previous faith is like it's just so explicitly mourning the image, mm -hmm. you know, and, and recognizing the emptiness of what was before. It's just so beautifully written too. Yes. Like what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, and there's so many moments like that that are just so in incredibly stated, so insightful, and like you can totally relate to or, or make you think of real people. And um, it's all going on in so many directions because all these characters are so different. Yeah. Yep. They're all coming to these places in their own ways. Yeah. Well, and some, some and fail, some, some yeah. die. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the book then, it, while it has a lot of violence, uh, but not like Cormac McCarthy violence, no, kind it's of like, like such petty violence, petty violence, <laughs> quiet violence, um, sinister vibes, but in a, a British countryside, yeah. like some sort of uh, blend of Oscar Wilde and Trollope, and like I don't know, anti Sartre. <laughs> <laughs> She's writing with all of this philosophical um, 20th century stuff in mind. She admires the Russians. Yeah, she's like, it's a book of ideas, and it's a book of morals. And in the middle of the 20th century, when by a person who's deeply considered the moral philosophy of her time, realizing too that the novel at this moment isn't really about moral 
big moral pictures. She talks about this in her essay that I mentioned, which is called Against Dryness, 1961 essay, Against Dryness. And she contrasts the crystalline novel, I think, with the um, journalistic novel. I may be butchering those um, terms. But she talks about how in the 19th century you have all these um, actual characters that are ac in actual big moral worlds where there's like moral assumptions and roles that they're playing and they're not totally free because they're, they're kind of types. And you could do that. Dostoevsky could do that. Tolstoy could do that. Uh, but in the 20th century, you have um, these novels that are about characters who are completely free, right? And so they can't be just types of moral things. They're they're living in their total freedom. And so she thinks of novels of, of the 20th century as either being crystalline, which by by which she means sort of symbolical and fantasy driven, or journalistic, which is kind of a hyper-realism where you can't say anything about ideas whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And she is wanting to do her thing, which is to use real human beings to smash images. <laughs> and uh, Success. So yeah, so, and she admires what, what Dostoevsky did and, and wants to do something that is that full of life and not dry in the uh, 20th century. But, the, you know, which for her means that has to be about truth and beauty and goodness, but also about real human beings. Yeah, I just can't imagine being able to do that. She did <laughs> well, very and well. And a lot of people aren't. You know, you think of writers who have big ideas or are attached to big ideas. It's not easy. No. And it's um right. And, and, and there can be a kind of writing that's like, okay, it's it must be a good novel because it made a broad sweeping moral kind of judgment. Right. And no. A moralistic novel, which can happen either from a sort of traditional morality, in a traditional morality way or a sort of social justice oriented way, right. like yeah. a 21st century. Knives out. The, yeah, knives out. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, uh, well, which can be done well. Like, yeah, that's like, right. <laughs> it can be done well. I enjoyed Knives Out. <laughs> but but uh, it is. It feels like ideas are are be being given a narrative rather yeah. than there's real people having something happen. Or it's like Walker Percy where I always feel like, could you just – can you just write an essay? Because it really feels like you want to write an essay. And instead I have to read this long novel <laughs> that um, – I love this. Doesn't I, feel real. I have gone against Knives Out, and you've gone against Walker <laughs> Percy. So anyone listening to this is going to be so now. mad. <laughs> well, that's Cormac McCarthy most recently, where it's like that's kind of how I felt about The Passenger, where it's like if you just want to write about your ideas, have fun, go at it. You don't well, have to I like put them in the mouths of a character. Loved his writing uh, about his ideas, the <laughs> of a uh, of, uh, worn down guy wandering around New Orleans personally. So well, we'll have to have this debate on another podcast. Yes. Yeah. Maybe we're going to talk about that later. Yeah. All right. Thank you everyone for your attention and your um, attentiveness. And I hope you enjoy Iris Murdoch. I strongly recommend her book, um, Sovereignty of Good and her book, The Bell. And uh, if you haven't read this fascinating novelist before, by all means, check her out. And uh, meanwhile, here at St. Bernard's School of Theology of Ministry, where I'm a professor of scripture and Heather teaches catechism and literature. Uh, please be aware that we've got um, courses in literature and the uh, Christianity and the arts. We've got courses in scripture, ethics. Um, I'm teaching a class this semester on Catholic social teaching. 
We've got a master's degree in philosophy, all kinds of opportunities. All of our courses can be taken uh, via Zoom online and with a variety of master's degrees and certificate programs, which you can find on our website. And I uh, hope you have a very <laughs> great day and talk to you later. Bye. <laughs>